I should like to call your attention this evening to the message of that portion of Scripture which we read at the beginning and which is to be found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 13 and I read from verse 1 to verse 16. From verse 1 to verse 16 in the 13th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. You remember it begins like this. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of men, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy, and say thou unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Now, most of you, I take it, are familiar with the fact that this particular prophet, Ezekiel, was a man who was raised up by God to speak to the children of Israel at a time of very great trouble. Indeed, it was worse than trouble. This was a man who was given the unenviable task of addressing his fellow countrymen when they were actually in a state of captivity. The other prophets who had gone before had been raised by God to warn the children of Israel that if they continued along the pathway they were treading, that it would lead to nothing but disaster. They were called upon to repent and to return to God, but they wouldn't listen. And so it came to pass that the prophecies which had been uttered by those men were fulfilled. The Chaldean army came, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed its armies, destroyed the city, and carried away the bulk of the people as captives to the land of Babylon. Now Ezekiel was a prophet whom God raised up in the captivity amongst the captives of Babylon to address the people. So as I am saying, the whole state and condition of the children of Israel was never worse, it was never at a lower ebb than it was when this a particular man was raised up by God to speak to them. But you notice that here, as always, when the nation of Israel found herself in this kind of condition, she was immediately addressed by two kinds of people. Here is the true prophet represented by Ezekiel. But there were other prophets, you see. The other prophets who are referred to in these verses that are before us. And these two types of prophets came and they addressed the nation in exactly the same position. But their messages, of course, were entirely different and quite opposed to one another. The one message was true, the other message was false. Now, this is the most amazing thing, this. Read the whole of your Old Testament. Read the whole story of the children of Israel. And you'll find that being repeated time after time after time. In their trouble and predicament, the two types of prophet appear. And they deliver their messages. And as I say, they are in blank contradiction to one another. Very well, then God raised up this prophet Ezekiel. And he gave him a double task to perform. One thing, obviously, was to give the positive message of God and to give the word of God to the people. But there was a subsidiary task that he had to perform, and that was to expose and to denounce the false message. And it is because he does those two things in this one paragraph that I am calling your attention to it tonight. Here were the children of Israel ready to listen to the false prophets. God gives a message to Ezekiel. He says, go and address them. He gives him a message for the false prophets themselves and through them to the people who were so ready to listen to them. So that here we have held before us, it's but a typical illustration, as I'm saying, of what is found so constantly in the pages of the Old Testament. The true message and the false message are put before us together in order that we can see the kind of choice that confronted the children of Israel. Well, now, I need scarcely say that I'm calling your attention to this tonight not because we take some kind of antiquarian interest in the story of the children of Israel. As an author in the New Testament puts it, these things were written for our example, upon whom the ends of the earth have come. God has recorded these things for us in order that they may be object lessons to us. And that is why we should be so grateful for the Old Testament. 
Grateful not only for these prophecies, but grateful even for the history of the Old Testament. God caused men to write this. He caused it to be preserved in an almost miraculous manner throughout the centuries. Why? Well, in order that we might have this great object lesson. We are all of us so slow to learn. We are so dull of hearing. When we are given the positive teaching of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New, we find it very difficult to take it in. We are living in an age when people like pictures. They say they can't listen to long sermons and addresses. They like to see anything in a picture. Illustration, story, drama. Very well, that's the Old Testament. That's precisely what the Old Testament is. It is a grand illustration of the whole state of mankind in trouble with the two messages, the two messengers addressing them. And that's my reason for calling your attention to this matter tonight. The world is in trouble. Desperate trouble. Everybody surely who thinks at all must be well aware of that. But not only is the world in trouble. You are in trouble, my friend. We're all in trouble. Problems and difficulties without and within. The whole battle of life. The failure in life and so on. We're all in trouble. None of us would be in this building if we didn't know that there was a problem and a need. Well, now then, it is because we here can look again at the only two messages that I'm calling your attention to this. Because that is the simple fact. There are only two ultimate messages addressed to mankind tonight. There is the message of this word of God, and there's everything else. I don't care what differences there are in the others. They all go under the same heading. They're not God's message. It's God versus everything that is not from God. Whatever the variations and differences. It comes to that once more. Everybody in the world tonight is being addressed by these two voices. There is this message. There's the other message. And we're all confronted by a choice. We've all got to listen to one or the other, and everybody is listening to one or the other. You can't be neutral in this matter. If you don't accept this, it means you are accepting the other in some shape or form. Everybody's making a choice. There's no such person as a person who's neutral to religion. If you don't believe it, you've rejected it. You can reject it passively. You don't have to denounce it. By ignoring it, you're rejecting it. So that we're all of us in one of these two positions. And as I see things this evening, with all the problem of life and all the precariousness of life, what can be more urgently important for us than to take the right choice? To know what to listen to in the problem and the perplexity. Which is the message that I must receive? Very well, let me put it before you. As it is presented here in this clear, very clear statement, which God gave the prophet Ezekiel to make to the children of Israel. Let me start with the false message. Son of men, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy, and say thou unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. The first question, therefore, that is raised for us is this, is the question or the problem, if you like, of authority. Surely that's the first question we should always ask when we are being addressed by anybody whatsoever. What's his authority? On what is he basing his statement? You don't just listen to a message as it tells. You say, well now, all right, well now, who, how, what right have you got to speak? What authority have you got for standing up before me? It's the same with anything that offers itself to us. You wouldn't dream, I hope, not at any rate, of taking a bottle of medicine if you didn't have some idea in your mind that it had been prescribed by somebody who knew what he or she was doing, you wouldn't just drink it because somebody says drink it. You'd say, now, well, what's in it? I want to know something about this. Uh, who's prescribed this? Who's made it up? Is, is this genuine? Is this right? Is it true? Is it authentic? You see, it's because of this kind of thing they've passed an act of parliament and you now have to put on the bottle what the ingredients are so that people may know what they're doing. Authority. Of course, it's common sense. You don't listen to a thing without knowing what it is. You don't accept a thing simply because you happen to like it. The first question that anybody 
with any power to reason or to think at all, uh, should put is, what is the authority behind the message? And never was it more essential than that we should ask that question. You see, these false prophets of Israel, they stood up and they spoke, and they claimed that they had great authority. They persuaded themselves that they had authority. They said, listen to us. We are giving to you the true message. And they tried to persuade the people that it was the true message. What characterized their speaking was self-confidence, assurance. They were proud, they were assured, they boasted of their learning, their knowledge and their understanding and their superiority over everything else. That's the whole picture that is given of them in the entire passage. But you notice what the prophet of God says concerning them. These are the people, says God to the prophets, who prophesy out of their own hearts. Woe unto those foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Now, this is a very vital point, isn't it? Here are these men standing up and addressing Israel, telling them what to do, telling them how to act, giving them a message of comfort. But what's their authority for doing this? And the simple answer is they have no authority at all, except that it's what they think, except that it's their idea, except that, it, that they have conjured it up themselves. But they've got nothing more than that. Look at this expressive word. They've seen nothing. He means by that they've not received a message from God. They're not recipients of revelation. They haven't had a vision from God. They've seen nothing. They just sit down and they spin out of their own minds and out of their own thinking what their theory is and what they are going to recommend. But it, it originates with them. It all comes out of their own hearts, out of their own spirit. And it's nothing more than that. Now, here I say is the first question, therefore, which we've got to ask. What is the authority of so much that is being put before mankind this evening? Before you listen to these philosophers and others, don't you think you should ask a question? Well, how does he know all this? Where's he got it from? And the moment you ask that question, you discover that they're but men like yourself. They're as fallible as you and I are. They're as muddled. They're equal failures in the art of life and of living. They're only men. They're just standing up with great confidence. They're addressing us. They're telling us what to do. And they say, follow us. But we say, well, what's your authority? How do you know? What have you seen? Let's ask them some fundamental questions. Now they see in God. They talk about him. They say there isn't a God. In their blasphemy, some of them say that they've sent up their Sputniks. And these men have been observing, but they didn't see God. Very well, we agree. They've seen nothing. But does that mean that there is no God? What are these men seen of the infinite and the absolute and the eternal? What do they know about it? What do they know about the eternal and the everlasting God? The Apostle Paul has answered our question once and forever. The world by wisdom knew not God. Ah, uh, they can go to a point, you see, they can argue up to a point, but then they suddenly stop. Some of them can argue cleverly from nature and creation. They should be able to go much further, but they don't. They've got a sense that there is something, someone. You remember those poor people at Athens, don't you? Amidst their temples was this extraordinary temple with this inscription over it, to the unknown God. They, they believed in Jupiter and Mars and the rest of them, and yet they had this feeling behind them that everything was not explained and that there must be some other God. There seemed to be some powerful God above the gods. They say, who is this? They didn't know. They couldn't arrive at him. They tried to. They tried to work it out. They couldn't get the unknown God. And it's always that. It always will be that. What does man know about the infinite and the absolute and the eternal? What does man know of one who is infinite in all his propensities, in all his attributes, who is everlasting? What's he seen of God? On what authority does he speak when he says there is no God or God is like this? Don't believe the Old Testament if it tells you that God's a God of wrath. On what authority are they saying that? 
This is the thing that Ezekiel was sent to denounce. Here were people within the body of Israel making statements out of their own little minds and hearts and saying this is the truth about God. And they know nothing about God. And so when you listen to men today saying this and that about the God of the Old Testament, just stop a moment and ask them the question. Say, on what authority are you speaking? How do you know that what you're saying is right? And the answer is he doesn't know. The man's asking you to regard him as a God. You're to take his opinion. He's got nothing but his own opinion. And he says it with great authority and pomposity. But is there anything behind it? There's nothing. He's speaking out of his own heart. He's speaking out of his own spirit. He hasn't seen anything. Are you going to follow men who just this speak with dogmatism, but with no authority and no sanction and no power? What do these men know about the unseen spiritual realm? What do they know about it? They talk about it very authoritatively. What do they know? They know nothing. It's only their idea. It's only their own thought. Mine's as good as theirs. So is yours. We're all in the same position. Nobody knows. Nobody sees. No one's been there and come back. It is that unknown bomb from which no traveler returns. Ask them on what authority they're speaking about these things. And what about death? What do they know about it? What right are they to speak about it? They don't know. They haven't seen. What of life beyond the future world, the unseen, and all that amazing realm? They know nothing. Nothing at all. They may be great philosophers. That doesn't mean they know anything. You see, when you come up against the fundamental problems of life and living, these are the ones I'm talking about. They know nothing at all. They haven't seen anything. They're simply speaking out of their own hearts. They're simply speaking from their own spirits. Am I speaking to someone? I've no doubt I am. Who's living that kind of life that is lived by the majority in this country tonight? Rejecting this teaching. Saying that this is played out. The others, the life, and so on. You've accepted the modern teaching. You've accepted what the newspapers say, and that kind of life that they advocate, and all that you see in the other agencies. Stop for a moment and ask this question. What's the authority for all that? What's it really based on? These people who talk so loudly and so glibly and so confidently, ask them what they really know. And what are they basing all this? They say you, to you, don't believe the Bible, they say. Don't believe that God punishes. Don't believe that there's a hell. Believe that God is love. We are telling you, God is love. Live as you like. You'll all be saved in the end. Nobody will ever be punished. They say it with confidence. Just ask them this simple question. How do you know? Where have you got your message from? What's your authority? And it'll always come back to the same thing. That's what they believe. That's what they think. They're speaking out of their own hearts. They're speaking out of their own spirit. They've got no authority behind them. They're like these false prophets that troubled Israel of old. But wait a minute. Let me advance to the second point that is made here, and that is that this message, this false message, is always a very superficial one. Did you notice in the reading the repetition of the word vain, the repetition of the word foolish? It's repeated here all along. These foolish prophets, thus saith the Lord God, woe unto the foolish prophets. And their message is described as a vain one. It is described as vanity. Have ye not seen a vain vision? Have ye not spoken a lying divination? Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because ye have spoken vanity and seen lies, so it goes, and mine hand shall be upon the prophets that speak vanity. God's driving it home. He's saying, in other words, this message is a vain one. It's an empty one. It's an utterly superficial one. But listen to it more, especially in the 10th verse. Because, even because they have seduced my people, saying, peace. And there is no peace. There was no peace. And one built up a wall, and lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. Now, what does all this mean? Well, let me interpret it for you. This is the pictorial way in which the message was then presented. And it's just a very dramatic way of showing the utter superficiality of this false message which is delivered with such confidence. 
And my dear friend, this is the characteristic of every message addressing men tonight, apart from the message of this book. Let me prove what I'm saying. It's unutterable superficiality. Did you think that religion was some sub-stuff? Did you think we spent our time here in just singing choruses and in telling affecting stories and weeping and crying? My dear friend, I'm sent here to call you to think and to reason and to get hold of something solid. I wouldn't be preaching it but for that. The other is so utterly superficial. Let me show you what I mean. Well, the first way I prove its superficiality is this, that it always tells us what we want to hear. Always suspect a message that tells you what you want to hear. That's always a false friend, isn't it? The true friend is the one who tells you the truth. The false friend always flatters. Always speaks nicely and kindly. You're always right, you're never wrong, and everything's perfect. It always tells us what we want to hear, and these modern messages that deny this book, they're all telling us precisely what we want to hear. You watch the newspapers. The prominence they always give to anybody who denies belief in God or in something like that. Any man who gets up and says, science has exploded a belief in God, here they'll, they'll give it a wonderful headline. Why? Well, you see, they like it, it's what they like to hear, and they know that the people will like it. It's always popular because it tells us what we want to hear, but still more seriously, it's a teaching that doesn't see any difficulties. It says peace, and there was no peace. This is always the characteristic of this false teaching. It always comes to us and in some shape or form it says it's all right, everything's all right. It always tells us that there's nothing seriously wrong. There's nothing profoundly wrong. Look at its view today. Now look at the world as it is tonight. Let me reconstruct this problem for you. I'm going to hold this problem before men and women until they really begin to think seriously about it. Look at our world. Look what's happened to it in this one century alone. Why is this world as it is tonight? That's the question. That's the question of questions. What's the matter? How is this? Why does man behave as the lunatic that he, that, that he is? Why is all this? Why these wars? Why this expenditure on bombs? And at the same time, the suffering and the hunger and the need in so many countries. What's the matter? Well, you see, if you go to these other teachings, they'll tell you still that there's nothing seriously wrong. They'll say that human nature is essentially good. Man isn't evil, they say. Don't believe those preachers. Don't believe your Old Testament. It says man's evil. Don't believe that. Man is essentially good. Man's a good fellow. They still say that. They're still telling us that. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in evil. They don't believe in the words of Jeremiah that the heart of men is desperately wicked and deceitful. They say it's not true. Have I reminded you before of the men I once heard and read at any rate making great fun of that hymn we are all so fond of, Jesus, lover of my soul. The part he made fun of, of course, was the verse in which the poet says and we sing, Just and holy is thy name, I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. He made great fun of this. He said, who would dream of applying for a job and saying, ah, vile and full of sin I am. Nonsense. Of course, it isn't true. Mustn't believe this idea of sin. There's nothing wrong with men. Man's a very good fellow. Man's really very decent. Man always wants that which is right. Well, then all I ask is this. Why is our world as it is? Oh, but they say it's the economic problem. It's the social problem. It's the political problem. And so, you see, they'd have us believe that it's just some problem that can be dealt with in that way. They don't see, they don't believe, they deny the teaching which tells us that the trouble is in man himself. In his heart, in his spirit, in his whole attitude, in his relationship to God. No, no, they don't like that. It's a peace, they say, it's all right, peace, peace. The problem's not a terrible one, they say, it's not a profound one. The problem is just this economic, political problem with which we are trying to grapple. And then, of course, in the same way, and perfectly logical with the superficial diagnosis, the solution is equally superficial and glib. They just come along, as he says, and they say, peace, peace. Well, some put it right, they say. 
We'll put this right without the slightest difficulty whatsoever. And how do they proceed to do it? Well, now, here's the most interesting statement. Did you notice it? Because, even because they have seduced my people, saying, peace, and there was no peace. And listen. And one built up a wall, and lo, these others, the prophets, daubed it with untempered mortar. Let me give you a better translation. When people have built a flimsy wall, they, the false prophets, daubed it over with whitewash. That's really a better translation. It's an accurate translation. In other words, what he's saying about the false prophets is this. Here are men in trouble. Well, now they say the enemy's coming. We must put up a wall. So they build a flimsy wall. They don't build a proper one. They put up a flimsy wall. The false prophet comes with his whitewash in a bucket and he takes out his brush and he just makes it look white. Wonderful. What a wall. Look at it. There it is glistening white in the sunshine. A marvelous wall. Yes, but actually it's a flimsy wall which they've just whitewashed to make it look very nice and very wonderful. That is how God sums up the unutterable superficiality of every teaching tonight that is confronting mankind apart from his own word and its teaching. In other words, the charge he brings against it is this. It's nothing but appearance. It's nothing but a facade. It's nothing but a covering over. It's nothing but whitewash. So something concealed, something patched up, something made to look as if it were right when it's not right. That is God's judgment upon everything in the universe this evening that isn't based upon the teaching of this book. Have you realized that, my friend? What are you following? What have you accepted? What are these teachings that are held before us and that sound so wonderful and so fascinating? This white wall that seems to offer me all I need. Let's examine it. What is it? Well, here are some of the things that are true of it. It's something that puts knowledge instead of wisdom. Isn't that the whole of our trouble at the present time? Knowledge has increased, but wisdom lingers. We've never had more knowledge. And people have believed in knowledge. Knowledge was going to solve the problem. If only you educate people, our forefathers said, our grandfathers, the late Victorians, the Edwardians, educate people and you'll solve the problem. Give men knowledge and everything will be all right. Well, we've got it. But what has it led to? Does it give us wisdom? Do we know how to use and how to imply our knowledge? Everybody's agreeing at the present time that that is the essence of the modern trouble. Man, you see, has split the atom. That's brilliant, yes, but he doesn't know how to use his knowledge. And so we are threatened by the bombs and threatened by a final disaster. This wonderful wall, which has been whitewashed by our leading philosophers. It's nothing but knowledge, it's information. There's no wisdom there. Oh, let me put that in this way. It's scientific knowledge instead of a knowledge of how to live. Isn't that the whole tragedy of this hour? Here is this imposing structure, our scientific advances and developments and researches, this amazing structure that we've put up. Yes, but you see, the question is, does it help me how to live? Does it teach me how to die? Does it prepare me for eternity? It's very imposing to look at. It's very wonderful, but let me examine it. And there I see it's a flimsy wall with whitewash. My scientific knowledge is supposed to solve all my problems, but it isn't doing so, and we all know that. Then another thing I would say is this. There's something that puts appearances before character. It puts polite manners before truth and honesty and real character. The whole of modern civilization is so much like the smart set. They look so wonderful. They're all so kind and affable and friendly. It looks perfectly, perfect, doesn't it? But listen to what they're saying about one another under their breaths. Listen to the whispers. Listen to the analysis of that other woman and her dress or this man and what he claims to be doing. Ah, oh, the whitewash of it all. The lie, the vanity, the superficiality, the apparent ease, the affability, the niceness. It isn't even skin deep. It's whitewash upon a flimsy wall. Manners replacing character. And a superficial glamour and ease of manner are doing duty for solid worth and sterling qualities. Is that not a perfect description of modern society in this and in every other country? What else? Well, it's putting morality in the place of holiness. 
respectability in the place of living a life such as God meant men to live. I'm here looking at the modern man at his best. I'm thinking of the polite modern man tonight in the suburbs, if you like, who never goes near a place of worship. He doesn't see the need of it. He's living a very good life. He's an honest man. He's a moral man. Ah, yes, but that's all he's got. He knows nothing about holiness. He knows nothing about the higher reaches. He knows nothing about the life of the saint. Morality! A self-contained respectability. Instead of the holiness of the life of God in the souls of men. You see, it's nothing but whitewash upon a flimsy wall. Or take another illustration of it. I could go on almost endlessly illustrating this one theme of the whitewash upon the flimsy wall. Here's one of the most popular. Psychology instead of regeneration. Oh yes, they say there's something wrong. The world isn't right. Men and women are unhappy. They're feeling the strain. They can't sleep. They can't think. What do we do? Well, what they're doing is to run up a flimsy wall and then the expert comes with a whitewash. That's called psychology. It's doing a flourishing business because people can't sleep. Because relationships are breaking down. Because they lack ease and there are tensions. And you see, you go and have this treatment. And of course it is eased up to a point. Of course a wall has gone up and there's whitewash upon it. There's something there. I'm not saying there's nothing there. What I'm asking is what is there there? Is it really dealing with the problem? Is it really solving the problem? Is it really dealing with the whole case and condition of men? So that I come to my last illustration of it and it's this. It's drugs. Drugs instead of the dynamic of the gospel. That's why the modern man is drinking more alcohol than he's ever done. That's why he is living on phenobarbital and these various other drugs. Haven't you seen it in your newspapers? It's a drug-ridden generation that we're in. Why? Well, you see, it's the problem. And we're trying to solve the problem. And we're just running up these walls and whitewashing them. And we think we're solving our problem. Because I sleep having taken my drug, I say, I'm all right. I'm no longer suffering from insomnia. But I am. I'm still suffering. It's left my disease where it was. There's no real solution. It's all superficial. It's just the whitewash. It's an appearance. I seem to be better, but I'm not better. I'm living on sleeping drugs and tranquilizers. I'm living on soporifics and stimulants in the morning to keep me going. And thus I go round and round. I think I'm better. I feel better. But am I better? You see, it's all here in Ezekiel, written so long ago. The flimsy wall and the whitewash. A wonderful appearance. But what's at the back of it? It's nothing but utter superficiality. And that brings me to the next point which is made by the prophet, which is this. It's not only superficial, it is false. And it's finally futile. This is what makes it so serious because, even because they have seduced my people. And you seduce with a lie. You make a promise you can't keep. It's not true. The seducer is a man who's a liar. He thrives on lies and lying and vanity. The very thing that's said here about this false prophet. These are the words that I say that are used. It is false. And still more alarming, it is futile. But can you prove that, says someone? Well, I can, my friend. I'm here to show you how true it is. It's all here before us. I say that I'm preaching this because this is the only true message. It's the only message that works, that really does what it claims to do. The other's a lie, and it'll let you down, and it's futile. Can I prove it? Well, I can. As I said at the beginning, this whole story of the children of Israel proves it. The story of the children of Israel proves that the false prophet was a liar. He kept on saying, peace, peace, but there wasn't peace. He said they'd never go into captivity, but they went into captivity. He said here in, in Babylon that they'd easily come out, but they didn't come out out easily. And in the way that he'd said, he's always a liar, he's always wrong. Eventually he's futile. That's the value of history. Oh, that men would listen to the message of history. The whole story of history is this, that men who've turned their backs upon God and listened to the other have always found themselves in final failure and misery. Now then, this is the charge that is made specifically and in detail. You have not gone up into the gaps 
Neither have you made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. That's the charge. What's it mean? It means this. You, says God to these false prophets through his servant Ezekiel, you claim to be the guardians of Israel. You say that you, are, have, that you have the interests of the people in your heart and that you're trying to help them. Very well then, why have you allowed these gaps and breaches to develop in the wall? And the answer is that it is their own teaching that has produced them. Gaps in the wall, breaches in the defenses. It happened to Israel. That's how the Chaldeans were so easily able to conquer Jerusalem. But oh, how true this is in a spiritual and in a moral sense. You see this teaching, this philosophy that tells us that there's not much wrong, that we're all very good fellows, that man as he is is essentially good, that not to trouble too much, not to get too excited, not to be alarmed, not to repent, not to fear God, that teaching always leads to slackness. Always leads to lack of care, always leads to a lowering of the moral tone and level. The breaches develop and the enemy comes rushing. There are gaps in the wall. What about you as an individual tonight? Are there gaps in your wall? Are there breaches in your wall, the wall of your soul? Are you intact? Have you maintained purity and chastity? What are the wall of your soul, I ask tonight? Examine yourself, my friend. Haven't you found that listening to these modern teachers and denying this has led to gaps and you've lost something and you've lowered? But what about the whole state and condition of the country? Look at the moral problem in this country tonight. How has it arisen? When did it arise? It has arisen ever since men have been turning their backs upon the Bible. The moment men put their faith in education and distrusted the Bible, the moral problem began to increase. You tell men there's no God, there's no righteousness, there is no truth, there is no judgment, there is no hell and heaven. Do what you like to them then. Give them money, give them education, give them houses. It won't help you. You'll get a moral declension. You've got it today. The gaps, the breaches in the wall, and the enemy's crowding in. We are alarmed by the moral problem. It's the false teachers who have produced it. It is the deniers of the word of God. It is the false philosophers. They're directly responsible. But in addition to that, you notice that God charges these men with failing to make up the hedge for the house of Israel, to stand in the day of battle in the day of the Lord. They've not only allowed the breaches to develop, you haven't built a wall, you haven't provided them with some protection and some means of defense. And here again, I just want to issue a simple and a direct challenge. You who do not believe this word of God and who listen to the popular teaching of the hour, do you find it helps you in temptation's hour? When the enemy comes in his subtlety and tempts you, do you find your teaching helps you? Does it hold you? Does it protect you? Answer for yourself. What else? Well, trials, sickness, loss, sorrow, and bereavement. Does your teaching help you? When you're laid on your back and can no longer work and your prospects seem to be disappearing, have you got anything to fall back on? Does your teaching help you then? When your loved one is dying next in the next room, does it help you? Does it hold you? Does it garrison you? These are the questions, my friend. The test is bound to come. The test always comes and always will come. Listen to God saying, Say unto them which daub it with untempered mortar that it shall fall. There shall be an overflowing shower, and ye, O great hailstones, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall rend it. The kind of thing they had in Spain last week. The kind of thing that they had even in Mallorca. The kind of thing that was lashing the coasts of Western Britain last night and may come again the storms of life. They're bound to come and they do come. Death itself. The storms of life. Yes, the man cries out, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide till the storm of life is past. And life is a storm. 
These are the trials that come. The billows roll, the hurricane is howling, and my little frail bark, what can I do? Till the storm of life is past. Here's the way to test these teachings. Do they help you in the storm of life, in the agony, in the hurricane, the things I've mentioned, and at the end, your own death and departure out of this world? What have they got to give you? What do they say to you? Do they sustain you? Do they help you? Do they prepare you? Do they comfort you? These are the questions that we must be facing. But above and beyond them all is this ultimate question. You have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the heads of the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. Here's the ultimate test. The day of the Lord. What's that? That's the judgment of God. Here it is, you see. With all our thinking and philosophizing and cleverness, we've got to die and then stand before God. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day when all men will have to stand before him and give an account. Tell me, how do these teachings help you? What have they got to give you? What have they got to offer you? Because we are confronted by a God who can discover and make bare the foundations. The foundation thereof shall be discovered. God seeth and trieth the heart. God knows the recesses of the mind. There is nothing concealed and hidden from him. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What do they help you then? Here he is. He sees through everything. Do these teachings help you to live? Do these teachings help you to die? Do these teachings help you to face that unknown eternity? What if you had been one of those people in Spain? What if you become the victim of an earthquake? Are you ready? And how will your teaching help you then? How will your philosophy help you then? How will the good time help you? How will the free and easy attitude help you? How will it help you to say, peace, peace, when everything's crashing and disappearing and floundering all around you and beneath your feet? And the answer is, as you know perfectly well, you'll have nothing, nothing at all, no help, no aid, no comfort, no solace, no strength, nothing. Hopelessness, despair, darkness, disaster. Well, let me say the last word. What is then the fate of all who teach such teachings and all who believe such false teachings? Well, let me just give you the headings. The truth about all such is that God is against them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because you have spoken vanity and seen lies, therefore, behold, I am against you, saith the Lord God. I know of nothing more terrible, more awful than that than that I should have God against me. That the almighty and eternal and everlasting God should be against me because I know something of his power. He is the one who can control the elements. He made them. He controls them. He can raise the storm and he can quell it. He can raise the billows and cause them to subside. God! But he's against these people. And he is against all who listen to their teachings. It is my business to warn you very solemnly of this, my dear friend. I am against you, says the Lord God, and mine hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity and that divine lies. God's hand shall be upon them in the sense that he's going to strike them. Do you know anything about the hand of God? And its power to inflict punishment, my hand, says God, will be upon them. He then talks in verse 13 like this. Therefore, saith the Lord God, I will even rend it with a stormy wind in my fury. That's the wall they've built, which has been whitewashed. And there shall be an overflowing shower in mine anger, and great hailstones in my fury to consume it. Ah, oh, but says the modern man, I don't believe that. I don't believe in a God who can be furious. I don't believe in the wrath of God. All right, my friend, if you don't, I ask you the question I've already asked. How do you know it isn't true? What do you really know about God? On what grounds do you say you don't believe in the wrath of God? On what grounds do you assert that Ezekiel is mistaken? Where's your authority? Have you seen God? Do you know anything about him? God says that he'll arise in his anger and in his fury. 
And he's going to judge all such people with a righteous judgment. And you know what happens? Well, here it is. Thus will I accomplish my wrath upon the wall and upon them that have daubed it with untempered mortar. And will say unto you, the wall is no more. Neither they that daubed. In other words, everything they've ever trusted to is swept away. There's nothing left. Your money and your joviality, your drink and your sex, and everything that the modern man lives on, and as he rejects this, it'll all go. There'll be nothing left. Your wonderful wall, whitewashed, looking so pretentious and wonderful, it'll all be smashed. The very foundations are revealed, and they'll be destroyed as well. There'll be nothing left. The wall is no more, neither they that daubed it. Your great philosophers and politicians and all the infidels will go down with it to destruction, and it's an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That's not only the teaching of the Old Testament. It's the teaching of the Son of God. It's the teaching of the whole of the New Testament. God is a righteous, holy God. He hates him. He's going to punish it. He's going to destroy it. And everything that is opposed to his holy laws. Here is the message. The other message is a lie. And this is the punishment it receives. But to me the most terrible part of the punishment is this. Verse 9, and mine hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity and the divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people. Neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel. Neither shall they enter into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord God. Oh, the tragedy. Not only are they punished in this terrible manner, they're excluded from all the blessings of the kingdom of God. They shall not be written in the writing of the house of Israel. Neither shall they be in the assembly of my people. Neither shall they enter into the land of Israel outside. Excluded from the blessings of God. Excluded from the blessings of the kingdom of God. Shut out. Shut out forever. Like the five foolish virgins depicted by our Lord. They come hammering at the door. But it's shut. There's no entry. They can't go in. Shut out from God's pardon. Shut out from peace with God. Shut out from the knowledge of God as Father. Shut out from the blessings that God showers upon his children. Shut out from that care that counts the very hairs of our head and will be with us in the storm and in the sunshine and in death. Shut out from the exceeding riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Shut out from the everlasting joy and bliss of heaven and the glories of eternity. Why? Well, because they've delivered a false message and people have listened to it. It's the only explanation. My dear friend, have you realized that this is your position and mine tonight? There's only one hope, and it's this. Hear ye the word of the Lord. You see, I've depicted to you the utter falseness of that other message. It's futility, the place in which it lands you. It robs you at all points. It's a seduction. It's an appearance. It's mere whitewash. There's nothing there. And you'll find it one day when you've lost your character, when you're dying in utter awful loneliness, when you've no comfort and consolation, when you stand before God in the judgment. Nothing. Nothing. The wall is no more. Oh, let me plead with you, hear ye the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not here trying to say what I believe only, what I've conjured up. It isn't, it's the message I have before me. I've been expounding Ezekiel 13, 1 to 16. They're not my words, they're his. And he received them from God. My dear friend, in your troubles, why not start listening to God? Aren't you tired of listening to men? They've no authority. Here is the almighty God speaking. Oh, I plead with you, listen to him. What's he tell you? Well, he tells you that all your troubles are due to your rebellion, to your alienation from him. 
Your troubles are due to the fact that you've sinned against him. That all we like sheep have gone astray. He tells you this, that your problem is a very serious one. That when man fell, it wasn't a light thing, it was a very deep thing. That all man's powers and propensities and faculties became perverted. It says the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. That what I need is not knowledge but a new heart. It says that man by nature loves the darkness and hates the light. Instead of loving the light and hating the darkness. It'll tell you that you're as bad as this, that you need a new heart, a new nature, a new beginning, a new life, a new everything. That's the truth. It'll tell you the truth about yourself. You won't like it. Of course you won't. Who does? But it's true. It doesn't say peace, peace. It says alarm. Flee from the wrath to come. While there is still time, make your peace with God. It calls you to repentance. To an acknowledgement of your sin and shame and failure. And then it tells you this amazing and wonderful message about God in Christ. Oh, how can I put it to you? God so loved the world, even this world that I've been describing, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him need not perish. Just see the folly and the futility of everything else. Go to God, get on your knees before him and acknowledge it and confess it. And say, I see it, I'm vile, I'm rotten, I'm a fool. Why could I ever believe it? What made me believe such lies? I'm the fool, the dupe, the devil. I believed in the whitewash and the daubing and the appearance and the sham. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And he'll tell you that he has. That he sent his only son into the world for you. And that he, the blessed son, took all this guilt and shame upon himself and bore its punishment on the cross on Calvary's hill. And that you have but to believe that and God forgives you. Your past shall be forgotten, a present joy be given, a future grace be promised, a glorious crown in heaven. Oh, how I rejoice in this word of God, I wouldn't venture to say it. Could I stand here and say to men and women who have rebelled against God and sinned against him and spurned his word and his vice throughout their lives, would I dare tell such people, look here, turn round and you'll be right for in a moment and for all eternity. I wouldn't dare to say it. I say it because I've got the authority of God. Because it is the word of the Lord. It is his own word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Whatever you be, however long from mercy you may have kept and strayed away. Thy blood, O Christ, can cleanse me and make me white today. Hear ye the word of the Lord. The case of man is desperate. So desperate that civilization can never cure it. It's been trying to throughout the running centuries. It gets from bad to worse. Education can't. Culture can't. Nothing can. He must be born again. And you can be born again. The Son of God said, I am come that they might have life. And that they might have it more abundantly. Turn your back upon the flimsy whitewashed wall of culture and civilization and modern men's learning and confidence. Turn your back on it. The lie, the sham, the fraud, the futility. Turn your back upon it. And in your weakness and helplessness and failure and shame, hear the word of the Lord. And you'll find peace in your heart. You'll know that you're forgiven. You'll become a child of God. You won't be afraid of the future. You'll have a wall. You'll have one who'll stand with you in the breach, in life, in death, in the last. He'll be with you always and usher you into the presence of God in eternity. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The guardian, the lover of your soul. Hear ye the word. Of the Lord. And while there is still time. Be saved by it. And you'll be saved for all eternity. Amen.